You are listening to Too Much Information here on WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker, and this week we are trying something entirely different. We're broadcasting live from WFMU's glorious Studio A, and joining me for the entire hour is the cartoonist Bill Griffith, who's come all the way from Connecticut so we could do this in person, man-to-man, face-to-face. Bill Griffith has always been one of my favorite artists. His comic strip, Zippy, has been amusing and confounding Americans on the comics pages of many big city papers for over a quarter of a century. And while the newspaper comic as an art form is probably dying, Zippy continues to reach new highs. The most recent storyline, three years in running, takes us into the world of Dingberg, a city, a whole city of pinheads. But it's also a deep excavation of the other side of the American dream and the American way of life. What's always fascinated me about Bill Griffith is that he is both a mainstream comics page fixture and one of the seminal voices of the underground comics movement of the late 60s and early 70s. His latest book, Lost and Found, published by Fanographics, reprints a lot of this early work including stories from Young Lust, a comic series that he did was part porno and part parody. I want to start our conversation off with a trip back to these underground days, Bill. Can you tell us how you ended up doing underground comics? I know you were aware of comics as a kid, but you weren't a comics freak like Crumb or Spiegelman. You went to art school to be a painter. What was it about this world of underground comics that pulled you in? Well, you have to go back to the uh, days of early underground newspapers in New York in 1968. I had already seen Zap, Crumb's first comic. I actually picked it up in a bookstore in Times Square. By accident? No, it it appealed to me, but I, I didn't think, oh, an underground comic. I just picked it up because it looked funny. <laughs> and I got home and I, th- I thought it was hilarious, but I thought the guy must be 65 or 70 years old, maybe living somewhere in downtown Duluth, because it was it just didn't seem to be of its time. It seemed to be somewhere else. <laughs> but that in itself didn't trigger any comics impulse in me. About a, a year later, a friend of mine uh, showed me the first few issues of Screw, the newspaper, the sex paper. And he showed me the comics, and he said, you can do this. He was basically goading me into doing it. And he later turned out to be a cartoonist himself, um, more of a kid's book illustrator. So I just, on a whim, I did a half page, and I brought it down to the screw offices. In those days, I don't know, uh, talk about uh-huh. f- free-form form radio. This, this was free-form everything. <laughs> I walked into the offices of Screw with my first half-page Strip yeah. and Steve Heller, the art director, who later became the art director for the New York Times Book Review, said, "Oh my God, you you drew it to the right proportions. We'll print it." <laughs> he literally was. That was when I talked to him many years later. He said, "Yeah, that was why we printed yeah. it." You you did a strip for this. Yes, uh, and Zippy. I did. I did. We don't get to see what it was that was going on in the panels. We do see. We do yeah. see the Toad. Yeah, this this was pre-Toad. Although Toad was something I'd been doing doodles and sketches of since the early '60s. But um, I, I did some crazy pornographic <laughs> science fiction half-pager, and they published it. And I remember coming back to the offices to get my complimentary copies, 
And I said, how many of these things are out there? And Steve said, 10,000. I said, what? If 10 people see my paintings, uh-huh. that's a lot. And within six months, I stopped painting and just got into comics. Wow. So I did it because I had an audience. <laughs> so another um, one of my favorite underground cartoonists, Kim Deitch, went to school with you at Pratt. What, did he yeah, play Kim, Kim was role? Kim was responsible indirectly for me being a cartoonist. In 1962, when I went to Pratt, Kim was in my dorm, the floor below me, and we became friends. And he was steeped in comics through his father, who was a cartoonist yeah. and animator. And um, Kim showed me Little Nemo and Crazy Cat in 1962. I had never heard of either one of them. And once again, the seed was planted, but yeah. nothing really came out of it at, at that point. It took years. So he was into old stuff even even yeah. then. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, there was one Crazy Cat book um, published by uh, or written by a guy named Woody Gelman who worked for Topps Bubblegum, and that was it. There was one Crazy Cat book, and I think there might have been maybe Kim had some huh. old newspaper tear sheets of Little Nemo, but you know I would get stoned and look at Little Nemo and think how far out it was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, six years later, I did a comic strip for the first screw. I don't know. So did you guys hang out at Pratt? Or, I mean, were you guys... Yeah. Yeah, yeah we did. Kim, Kim turned me on to comics and pot, both. <laughs> and, um, yeah, there were half a dozen weirdos at Pratt, and Kim was one of them, so... And you both dropped out, if yeah. I think I'm right, right? He... I think maybe he lasted a little bit more than me. I, I dropped out after mm-hmm. two years. I took my student loan and went to went to Paris. <laughs> so when did you under or did you understand back then, as you are fond of saying now, that the comic strip is one of America's greatest art forms? Were you aware then? No, not at all. I was aware from from childhood. I was I was a big fan of Little Lulu and Uncle Scrooge and Nancy and. Um, but it never occurred to me to be a cartoonist. I just thought they were huh. wonderful. I, I, I literally, uh, I waited every month to get a new uh, Walt Disney Comics and Stories, hoping there would be an Uncle Scrooge story. In yeah. there. There's also, I, I think you've talked about this as well, but you had, and again, you know, the attraction to the underground comics is a very new world, but it also seems that uh, during your childhood, your mom, for a brief time, was an editor of those daily or the best gags of the year books and you would help pick ones for her. My mother was the secretary to a man named Lawrence Larrier who was a cartoonist and a writer, a crime fiction writer and he was, he just had his finger in a million pies and one of them was the best cartoons of the year hardcovers Hmm. which came out every year from about 1950 to maybe even the early 70s. You can still see them in old in used bookshops. Yeah, yeah. And one year, I think it was 57, I mean, he was so busy. He, had, he was an ins- insanely um, compulsive guy. He had so many different careers that one year he said he didn't have time to look through the cartoons. He would ask every gag cartoonist in America, basically, mm-hmm. to send him 10 of their best, what they thought were their best. And they sent originals. <laughs> yeah, it was 1957. And nobody had a Xerox machine. So he, he got hundreds and hundreds of original cartoons. And he didn't have the time that year, so he gave it to my mother to do. She brought it home, this package of hundreds of gag cartoon originals, and we just laid them on the floor, and she said, I have to make dinner. You pick them. 
<laughs> so I basically did the best cartoons of the year 1957. And, and were you attracted to these gags at all? I mean, were you? Yeah, you, I was. You were. So you, yeah, but you know, once again, not because I thought comics were great, but just I thought they were funny, and I liked looking at the artwork. I was huh. always into art. Yeah. So any any art was interesting to me, and, and my neighbor in Levittown was a guy named Ed Emschwiller, who was one of the top three science fiction illustrators in the country. So he influenced me quite a bit. Yeah, and, and, and you've drawn yourself many times talking with him, yelling at him that he needs to look at Jackson Pollock and yeah. modern art. Which which he did, and it kind of destroyed him. <laughs> uh, sometime around 1960 to 61, just before I left for college, he got into abstract painting and mm. experimental film. And he did some great stuff, but looking back... I have to say I prefer his science fiction mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, well, eventually you end up in San Francisco where at the heart of where all this was happening. And, you know, if there was like a magic bookshelf that had like autobiographies of the comic scene, I think I would still reach for yours first <laughs> because I, I have it in my head. You know, again, you didn't come here as a comics freak. You, ha- you had this art background. You knew a couple of the figures. You'd, you'd picked up Zap like many of the cartoonists. But I'm, I'm, I'm very, cur- you know, at the same time when you get there late, 69, I believe, 70, 70, when you move there for good. Yeah. You know, this is when uh, Spiegelman, you, Crum, Deitch, uh, your girlfriend, future wife, Diane, uh, lots of cartoonists are there. And while many of you are doing very different things, you all have different uh, projects, there's still something that ties all this together. And, I, and I'm, I'd love for you to, to, to hear what, what, what you, the way you saw it. Well, it felt like, it felt like an art, art movement. To at least to me and to Art Spiegelman and <clears throat> Jay Kenny, maybe a little bit to Kim. I don't think Crumb felt that way, but there was a, a comic book shop in the Mission District in San Francisco called the San Francisco Comic Book Company, and it was uh, run by a guy named Gary Arlington, and it's kind of where we all hung out. So uh, on any given day, you could drop by there and see. Various people, mm-hmm. um, some of whom even worked there. Some cartoonists, Kim worked there, and Rory Hayes worked there. And Gary was, to me, he was like the Gertrude Stein of our <laughs> salon. But when I suggested that to him, he didn't know who Gertrude Stein was. He thought he was William Gaines. He literally thought he had, um, I think William Gaines, William Gaines was still alive at the time, but he thought he was William Gaines. William Gaines' soul had, had seeped into him. And all the underground cartoonists were different EC comics artists like Wally Wood and Jack Davis. Mm-hmm. And he, he alternated that with believing he was Jesus. So it was a fun time. And what was the uh, co- manifestation of the Mad Magazine then? The, the cult, you know, besides Zap or, or, or what were the public? Can you talk about some of the publications that you all would work towards together? Like yeah, well, yeah the, way that, the way that worked was... Um, a cartoonist would more or less decide on an idea for a comic with a theme. The theme sometimes was just underground comics. Sometimes it was more specific. And then he would be the editor. And the editor would ask the different cartoonists that he liked to do stuff. And that was, I mean, it was very loose, completely loose. And the publishers were pretty much in the same boat with the rest of us. We used to think that they were above us somehow and that we should demand rights <laughs> but it was ridiculous they were just <laughs> nobody was making much money and the, the power was very equally shared what little there was 
But it was somebody would come up with an idea, like Roger Brand came up with an idea. He was a cartoonist at that point. He said, um, uh, I'm going to do a comic book called Real Pulp. And I, I don't think I ever even asked him what the theme was. But he said um, to me, he said, why don't you do something like your Young Lust stuff, Young Lust being a parody originally of girls' romance comics. He said, why don't you do a, a Young Lust type story with a love triangle, two normal people and one very weird person. So I said, okay, that sounds like something I could do. And I fished about for a weird person, and I came up with a pinhead. Yeah, and, and of course that is where it all started. My guest today is uh, Bill Griffith, the cartoonist and creator of Zippy, and uh, we are here on Too Much Information Live, which means you can actually call in, dear listener. We're going to be taking calls in a bit at 201-209-9368, or you can go on the AccuPlaylist page and... and uh, leave your comments for Bill or questions. But I want to back up to um, Young Lust, actually, because, mm-hmm. again, you know, one of the major themes, obviously, for so much of, you know, the underground comics at that time, and even in, when you open up Lost and Found, this collection, the sex definitely jumps mm-hmm. out at you. And, you know, it's a parody of something that a lot of people might not be even familiar with anymore, the idea of these well, romance comics. Well, people are familiar with it, but they're familiar with it not from their source, but through Roy Lichtenstein's yeah. paintings. <laughs> yeah, the Weeping Girls. The pop art yeah, paintings, yeah. Yeah, so there, there used to be tons of these. And what's, I guess one of the details that jumps out to me, though, is you made tons of money from these Young Lust comics. Uh, well, tons. Well, yeah. Yeah. Okay, fine. You, did, you didn't I, have the yacht. I didn't, I didn't have to get a, 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 you know, a, a crappy job. I could actually live on my comics royalties in the early 70s because of Young Lust. Young Lust started out as a a raunchy parody of girls' romance comics. Yeah. So it was all the things that girls' romance comics alluded to, Young Lust showed and did, all the, all the sex and yeah. all the, all the um, you know, sturm and drang of relationships. And uh, first couple of issues were really that's what they were. And l- they sold huge numbers. Yeah. Um, uh, it's amazing how many... How many printings they went through, and that kept me going for quite yeah. a while. And did you? I mean, do you look back on on this work now, saying, "Ah, oh, because you know the newspaper comics page is probably one of the anti-sex, you know, outlets, yeah. most anti-sex outlets." You know, there is no sex on the comics no. page like this. No, no, yeah, newspapers are in a weird, um, a weird kind of bubble where all the advances in in knocking down censor, censorship things like that have been made through TV and movies don't penetrate the newspaper world. I, I can't use, um, what did I try to use? Suck. Yeah. I can't use the word suck. Unbelievable. It sucks. You can't say that. Yeah, yeah. No. And, you, of course, you hear that a thousand times a day on TV, but if I point that out to my editor at King Features, who distribute my daily strip, they say, yes, but newspapers are, f- the newspaper comics are still perceived by editors as things for children. Yeah. So you have to... <laughs> I said, yeah. well, you think kids aren't listening to watching sitcoms that say suck every three seconds? You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a weird backward... No, no, and, and then when you throw in the internet, it's... You yeah, know. but I, I don't have any problem with it. Um, 
Uh, once in a while, I, I have an outlet to do um, X-rated stuff yeah. a, a, away from my uh, newspaper strip. And um, in this new book, there's actually not from the 70s, but from 1993, a zippy porn comic. that is, as, oh. It's like a trip to Dongberg. Yes. Uh, all of your characters <laughs> show up for this, this gang. To tell you, I couldn't actually read it. It yeah. was a bit too much, but I can't. I can't see how – weren't you scared that some little old lady Zippy fan would discover this and decide to make it her you know, you know, number one job to ruin your life? Yes, I was afraid, but it didn't happen. But, yeah, I mean, when I did that strip, I was already um, seven years into my daily syndicated Zippy. So that could have possibly killed my career right there. Yeah. And oh, yeah. when I did it, I was aware of that, but I thought – um, this is the last issue. This was the last issue of Young Lust, and it was like a goodbye issue. It was yeah. a final, you know, farewell to the whole but like series. Mid nineties, and I wanted to do something. It, you know, the, the strip, as as totally pornographic as it looks, it's a critique of pornography. That's the purpose of the strip. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I have my porn and eat it too, or something. But but the Griffey character is constantly um, trying to deconstruct pornography while having pornographic stuff happen and yeah. engage in throughout it. Yeah. Um, a few people have said, what the hell was that? And that was too much for me. And uh, apropos of the title of your show, Too Much Information. <laughs> um, but but I never got um, the people at King Features never noticed it. Yeah, they never saw it. You're, you're lucky that little old lady was just too <laughs> horrified by that, and she just put it back in the in the closet. Yeah. I'm sure she took it out a few nights. But <laughs> the other, you know, I guess the other main theme that's so strong in so much um, underground work, including her own, is this very fierce, in-your-face anti-authority uh, streak. And you know, you grew up in Levittown, which is was a literal leave it to Beaver like. Potemkin <laughs> village. Yes. And it seems like a lot of your earlier work is a lot of that personal um, rebellion and, and rage at that place. I mean, there's, but I, I'm wondering if you could sort of set up, you know, you coming out of Levittown, you know, going and in, in ending up in San Francisco as part of the scene. There's, there's a story that I know you've talked about in Zippy where you talk about your graduation and wearing a peace symbol. Oh, yeah. Um, the Wayback Machine. <laughs> Shall I now go to 1962? I'm about to graduate high school. And starting in probably 1960, at the age of 16, I joined a group called CNVA, the Committee for Nonviolent Action. And what they did, they did civil rights stuff and they did ban the bomb demonstrations. And I would go into New York once in a while, get on the Long Island Railroad and lick envelopes for them and and then I would go to their demonstrations. And I had demonstrated along with three other kids in 1960 or 61 uh -huh. against bomb shelters being made. People were encouraged to, to build bomb shelters so when the big one came, mm -hmm. they would survive and, um, in these lead-lined cellars and they had enough food to last three months. And, of course, no one thought about what would happen after that. But So um, I demonstrated against that and... As a result, I had the original peace button, the original peace symbol when it was fairly obscure. And I put it on my gown when I graduated high school. I approached the principal. He held out the diploma to me. And then with a very 
um, kind of uh, mean expression. He looked at me and he pulled the uh, diploma out of my hands mm-hmm. and told me to go aside. And uh, I, I was sent my diploma about two weeks later in the mail. So it was because of the peace button. And do you feel that this was particularly uh, relevant to the Levittown or more, more, more a story of you know, just America in general at that yeah, moment? I mean, at that point, you have, to, you have to remember this was a very different America when the generations were very far apart. Hmm. Uh, there were different cultures. There was a uh, – there was yet to be what came to be called the counterculture, but there was, there was an underground kind of bubbling up of the, of the pre-counterculture – that came out of things like you know beatniks and folk music and um, band the bomb rallies and I was all huh. loosely connected with that world and that was perceived of as a big threat and as a uh, you know a breeding ground for people who were not going to go on to become middle class uh, Americans and work in, in yeah. corporate offices so I was a bad influence I remember another thing that happened to me in June in uh, high school was I was uh, I, I took a lot of art classes. And I got A's every quarter, except for the last quarter, when my art teacher took revenge on me and gave me an F, because he would never have to see me again. And strictly out of out of that's, hatred of my politics. Right. Oh man! Yeah, he gave me an F for for ban the bomb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, you know, you've been exploring the meaning of Levittown for decades, and for you know, for some reason, like that story and the peace button one seem. You know, more you know, maybe it's hoping that it was more isolated to places like that rather than the the, the country at, uh, at large. Even though I know it it, it was a, a national, uh, there were lots of kids probably getting beat oh, yeah. up for peace buttons. Yeah. But um, I see the beginnings of sort of trying to process and understand Levittown in a lot of these early strips, which you know starts off with just you know rage. But, but you know, it's not like you. You're not angry anymore. In fact, Griffey provides you with an outlet yeah. <laughs> to get well, angry a couple I, times a I, week. I'm I'm perversely grateful for Levittown, if, if the truth be known, and I always have been. <clears throat> like I, I've said many times, Levittown was a great place to escape from. And uh, you know, when you're um, when you're trying to do something with your life, it's nice to have something that you know you don't want to do. Yeah. Uh, you. you it's nice to have things that you know you don't want to be, places you don't want to live. <laughs> it, 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 you know, it's it, it's not really negative. It's just a way of defining yourself yeah, and yeah. giving your rebellion some sort of form until you finally figure out what to do. Yeah. But Levittown was, um, you know, my mother uh, was. There's a movie called uh, Wonderland, a documentary from the 1997. 1997, and they interviewed me for that. I think I was the only one that escaped the wrath of the the young director who um, who just lampooned and 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 made fun of Levittown from beginning to end of this this documentary. John O'Hagan actually is the director. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when I saw it, I laughed, but I also winced, you know, because he was so vicious yeah. and so unsympathetic. He was all of twenty six years old, I think, when he made that. But there's a scene where I'm I'm being interviewed in my studio in San Francisco and there's a knock at the door and my mother pokes her head in and she says Bill are you in there and it was unrehearsed I mean she just that's what she did so the film stopped and my mother was introduced to the director and to the film the film crew and she said she was going to do some sunbathing in my backyard so she had her um, bathing suit on and she has a zippy tattoo on her 
left rear shoulder. <laughs> Your mom. So, my mom, yes. And so the film crew followed her out to the, to the uh, patio in the back of my house, and they interviewed her while taking pictures of her tattoo. Yeah. All they used in the entire interview was just the tattoo. Yeah, yeah. Because she didn't provide them with what they, what, what they wanted. She was an intelligent, thoughtful person. Yeah. She wasn't a kook. They wanted her to be a kook. Yeah. I, yeah there's, I haven't seen the movie in a long, long time. Yeah. But I, I, there, are some, there are some... When she did that tattoo, by the way, she, she asked me first if it was okay with me. And <laughs> so we, there was like the reverse parent-child. I said, what? What are you talking about? You're going to do what? And when I realized she was serious, I said, okay, listen, I don't want to have to look at some right. terrible zippy tattoo on your shoulder. Yeah. Let me at least do the drawing and hand it to the tattooist. So yeah. Amazing. It came out pretty good. Amazing. <laughs> um, before we move on from the underground to, to the strip, there's one thing I really want you to talk about some, and that's arcade comics, which you edited with Art Spiegelman. You know, many make the case that without arcade, there would have been no raw uh, magazine. This comes before that, um, 75. And, you know, this was one of the first big editorial stabs at making comics for you know, emerging out of the underground and into the magazine racks or the shops, the non-head shops. And I'm wondering if you could take us back there to uh, you and Art and, you know, your contribution to uh, Arcade. Well, Arcade was an outshoot of another th uh, comic called Short Order. When Art Spiegelman and I first met in 71, I think, within literally a half hour of meeting, we were sitting in a coffee shop on Mission Street in San Francisco plotting uh, what became Arcade. We didn't call it Arcade. Um, and so what happened was we did a comic called Short Order, which lasted two issues, which is sort of a proto-Arcade, but it was just a comic book. There were there's no attempt to include text or short stories the way Arcade did and no attempt to be, you know, get off newsprint onto white paper or get onto magazine racks. None of that was possible, but we we were always thinking about that. So within a few years after short order, um, well, there was another reason that happened. Um, there was a big economic slump in co underground comics around 74 the bottom fell out. The bottom fell out. Up until then, you could print much, pretty much 20,000 of anything. Yeah. Y you wouldn't believe. I mean, if you look I, back... It seems preposterous I have now. I have racks of these comics that were... They shouldn't have existed. There was, they're yeah. just people's acid trips, you know. But they sold 20,000 because people thought, oh, it's more crumb, or I don't know what they thought. And so you could sell 20,000 of any, any possible title. Then That naturally kind of started to fade. But at the same time, the Supreme Court decision on pornography hit, which was pornography is something to be determined by community standards. Yeah. So any town or city could say, this is pornographic, we're going to bust it. And they had, at least they had the right to do that. And of course, the minute you do that, you, told, you, know, you send a chill on the, in the distribution chain and comics all came back to the publishers and yeah. people getting busted were the clerks, not the artists. We never got busted. Store clerks were getting busted for pandering to children because the the DAs and the police couldn't believe underground comics were not aimed at kids because they were comics. Yeah. Therefore, they must be for kids. So th there was this real chill economically. Um, my young lust royalties weren't quite as big <laughs> that year. And um, 
That was when I also started working for Topps Bubblegum doing wacky packages, by the way. With Art. With Art yeah. Spiegelman, who invented wacky packages. Yeah. And so we decided to do Arcade as a kind of a life raft. Maybe we could, you know, forge this new this new paradigm of comics and we could have it on a on an equal basis with the National Lampoon and um, be on newsstands. So we got the print mint, one of the prime underground publics, comics publishers, the print mint in Berkeley um, behind us, and they bankrolled us for all of seven issues until it was obvious we weren't going to be able to do what we thought. But seven glorious issues. We were... We were, um, it was Art and I, we would trade back and forth editorial duties. We had a handful of cartoonists volunteered their time to help. And um, we almost had a, a, a magazine distribution deal, but the reason they finally didn't take us, they said, was because we didn't have enough advertising. Without advertising, they said we didn't look like a serious magazine. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> wow, wow. And when you see, when Raw comes out, you know, a few years later, what what do you what did you see that the sort of the through line being from arcade to raw? Because you know, raw was very different. It was just cre- you know this very much this art well, on the art side. Well, they're both they're, they're both um, attempts to make beautiful objects. To um, I mean, to this day, what I care about um, is making a, a, a beautiful object, and that happens to be a book. Yeah. Um, arcade was intended to be something wonderful from cover to cover and um, I think Raw took that even to higher (laughs) levels with their inclusion of um, European cartoonists for the first time and another way of of kind of platforming comics to get away from their strictly head shoppy underground roots and Mm -hmm. into a more um, bookstore kind of an audience into an audience that you know, I mean, underground comics had a bunch of a bunch of strains. There were there was the pure hippie strain. You know, there was uh, fabulous fabulous furry freak brothers, the leather nun, things like that. Doctor Atomic, um, D- Dope and Dan. You know, and then then the ones that were science fictiony kind of EC comics spinoffs, and then there was the satire, and the satire hmm. was the stuff that that had legs. You know, the other stuff was good, but. Of its time, but yeah. satire is sort of timeless. There's a great editorial drawing on the first page of Arcade One of you and Art going to a shooting gallery, and you kind of don't have any money, and it's yeah. <laughs> it seems like there's this tone that you know that this probably yeah. isn't going to work. We actually we made a manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> we were very pretentious. <laughs> 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 All right, let's move on to Zippy. Now, in the 70s and the 80s, this, the idea of becoming a comic strip artist, I think, is still a big dream for thousands and thousands of American young people. And I think today people just don't realize how much money and power came with that gig of being a syndicated newspaper cartoonist. And surely doing the work that you were doing, you know, showcased in, in this book, I just don't see you imagining that that's where you were going to end up as a syndicated newspaper cartoonist. But it, it's all completely surreal and crazy the way it happened. I I was doing Zippy as a weekly from 1976 on, first through the Berkeley Barb, and then through one of the underground comics publishers, Ripoff Press. They had a, a syndicate 
so-called. You know, they had half a dozen <laughs> artists that were sending out half-page strips to weekly newspapers. So I did that. <clears throat> so I've been used to doing a weekly zippy. And um, I was approached suddenly by Will Hurst III, <laughs> the heir to the Hurst uh, fortune, who was basically given the San Francisco Examiner as a toy to play with because it was sort of losing money and dying. and Bobbles. Not, yeah. And not that the Hearst Corporation cared it was losing money. They, were not, they weren't going to kill it. But they just gave it to Will because nobody else wanted it. Will then immediately contacted me, I mean, among other people, me, Robert Crum, and Hunter Thompson. And he asked the three of us if we would be regular <laughs> contributors. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you know, every day. I said, what? <laughs> you mean like a job? He said, yeah, like a job. Uh, and I said, well, let me think about it. And I thought about it, and I thought I'd give it a shot because I was doing it weekly. And I did it. And I did that for about a year. And then one of the editors at King Features, which is another Hearst, a mm. uh, division of the Hearst Corporation, noticed my stuff uh, from, from New York in the examiner and he flew out and asked me if I wanted to do Zippy nationally through King Features and I was the same thing like it was like wh why is this happening on what planet does this make sense and I remember coming to a, the next day coming back with a list of demands as if I was taking hostages yeah. I said I have to keep my own copyright you can't I won't, I won't use, you know, sex or four-letter words, but you can't editorially control anything I do. Um, you have to give me X amount of dollars. Um, I don't know, a, a dozen things. Yeah. And I figured at least one or at least five of them would kill the deal, and I would just happily go back to working for the examiner. But he said yes to everything instantly. Yeah, so here's a moment. Here's what I'd like to do to talk about. You, you, you've told the story before that, you know, you go to the offices at King Features to give this pep talk to the sales force and explain to them what Zippy is and how to sell it. I'm curious if you could tell us. I want to know what you said, and I also want to know what you would say if you could go back, knowing what you now know now, what you would have said then. Well, um, I have no idea how to sell Zippy to a mass audience, so I couldn't possibly... I mean, at the time... Well, you had to get up in front I, of these I people. I got up in front of these guys. What did you I, say? I said, um, sell Zippy as weird. Weird is happening. Weird is weird is weird sells. We're on the cutting edge of weird, and you're right there with the weirdest strip in America. And I also said, stubble sells. Zippy has stubble. And at that time, Don Johnson on Miami Vice had stubble. And I said, so pay up, play up the stubble <laughs> and the stubble and the weirdness. And they just looked at me. There was one guy who got who got that I was goofing on them. Yeah. And he still to this day is the only King salesman who has really done a decent job. Without him, I wouldn't have gotten the papers I got. But the other ones didn't know what the hell to do. Yeah, but did anyone say like, um, what is this strip about? Like, um, how did you, how did you explain? How did you say? I mean, this was the people you had no choice. <laughs> you know, they 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 got to ask you this as as um, sort of working for you. I think Can you tell me <laughs> how to sell this? Like, what do I say to the editor that this is? I think, I think they just wanted this meeting to be over. <laughs> 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 they didn't really ask very many questions. They just looked glassy eyed. Oh man! Uh, See, you have to remember, um, six months into doing Zippy Freaking Features, the guy that hired me left. In leaving, he told me. 
thank you for letting me leave a ticking time bomb on King Features' doorstep. It's like the opposite of that F, getting an F in yes. art school. Yes, exactly. He, he relished that he had given King Features this uh, weird thing. It was your karma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, I mean, there had to be, you know, so you say there was one sales guy. Um, well, all right, let me try that again. What would you say today, knowing what you know now, if you could go back to that moment, would, would you have done it differently? Would you have tried to explain to them, like, okay, here's how you can... I did, I did say one thing. I said that Zippy is, is all, about, all about media. And mm-hmm. so y- you should encourage papers to look at it that way and then put Zippy on the television page. And a lot of them did. Because Zippy was always talking about TV shows and pop culture and and which was all media. And I said, you know, Zippy maybe doesn't belong next to the family circus, but he might look good. Until they do their crossover in 1993. Little little did I know that that was... Far from true. Yeah. Zip, uh, well, I always, I always say Zippy and the Family Circus are the two surreal comic strips yeah. that are out there. Um, so you have a very rich cast of characters in this trip. And, and Zippy is, again, a free, you know, we are a free form radio station, and this is a free form strip, and that you get to do so many. There are so many yeah. sub fields in, uh, there is no typical Zippy strip. I mean, well, part, part of being uncommercial <laughs> is you're given, I mean, if you're lucky, you're given freedom. Yeah. Because um as long as I, I as long as I just you know pay the bills and and King features is okay with the fact that it's yeah. not a huge success they keep, they let me go they let me do whatever ever I do so I have complete freedom and I can do whatever I want yeah. and it's it's a great it's a great trade-off for me i I wouldn't have it any other way yeah so you have a lot of characters in 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 the in the number of characters that have grown and they've become uh, deeper individuals you know Claude uh, is <laughs> I feel his his tea party evolution is very interesting but the, the two for me the, the typical s- Zippy strip is you Griffey and Zippy talking together that, those are the ones that are always the most meaningful to me and you've, you've said that all of your characters are aspects of yourself but for some I feel that the relationship the strips that have you and Zippy or Griffey and Zippy together seem to transcend you know that Freudian framework. Yeah, well, it's you know it's me talking to my my better self. Um, I, I'm naturally judgmental and cranky and opinionated and prone to um, ranting, and Zippy is accepting and happy and open, and so there you got two diametric opposites, but they're both me. So it's me talking to my other self and to um you know to the degree that that you know works and brings out interesting observations and you know zippy acts as a a, a kind of a, a sounding board for griffy too Zip, zippy would never say to griffy what did you just say you're you're full of it so griffy can say whatever he wants yeah. and then zippy will come up with a an elliptical response that doesn't directly relate to what griffy said but it furthers the the line of thought or satire or whatever that's going on and it 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 makes it what what I like uh, is when things are indirect I don't like mm-hmm. stuff that's direct <laughs> I like stuff to come in through the side door and I think that's if I'm if I'm doing a good job a zippy strip has come in through the side door of your brain and done mm-hmm. something inside without you quite realizing it 
For a number of years, you've been publishing the strip in these annuals that Fanagraphics has been putting out. And, I, you know, I was talking to my friend Tom, another cartoonist uh, and publisher this morning, who's in town for the Mocha Festival this weekend. And we were talking about how, for both of us, our true love of the strip really developed once we started reading them in batches. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if, 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 you know, being a daily strip, you know, they, they obviously stand on their own. But once you start to put them together, everything you just said really resonates with me. Like the yeah. power of the strip seems to well, grow when yeah. you c- put them together. Well, thanks. Um, yeah. Uh, I do my work for those books. <laughs> that's, to me, that's the, mm. that's the end product is the books. Yeah, and the body of work. Yeah. And um, at first, I my annuals, I would just uh, I would uh, put them together chronologically. So it would just literally go over a period of a year or two and f- just the way they would appear in the daily strip. S- not so much anymore. I, I actually group them and make them follow some order that they tell me to do. And... Um, I think it works a little, I think either way is okay, but I think it works a little better the second way because uh, there is a lot more to be gained from my stuff, I think, in reading right. it in a continuity sense than there is from just the the bites that you get every day, although I think that's okay too. And yeah. I've learned over many years how to do that. I, I People sometimes, you know, tell me, you know, the you know the the um, the slam on Zippy is that it's not funny. It has no punchline, and um, that puzzles me. Yeah. I think it's a punchline every day. Always, absolutely. I'm I, I'm 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 a king of the punchline. <laughs> it just isn't always in the last panel. No, no, no. <laughs> um, so it seems to me that around 1990, you know, there's this there's this great strip. I think actually it is 1990 when Griffey, who up until then has had this crazy weird yeah. hair that you've never had as a person. No, this it was a, it was a cowlick that got out of control. Yeah, but he just he slicks it back, losing this this do, and I think the strip's title on that one is called v- Vitalis Day. V- yeah, well, Griffey decides that he can't control anything around him. He can't. He can't control the world. Um, he, he can't control uh, forces of 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 nature or politics. Mm-hmm. But he can control his hair. Yeah, but so it, he takes a comb and he combs his hair. And 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 that's the look he still has today. But it <laughs> seems to me that that moment, um, you know. It, it seems like you know you'd been doing the daily strip for a few years now that you had decided that you're in this for the long haul. I mean, and and again, like that, uh, you know, just that next twenty years of work. I mean, it's all you know. I, I think I've read almost all of it. It seems <laughs> like you 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 start trying. I mean, the strip really starts pushing some long form crazy adventures. You know, you have a couple oh, big um, periods of themes, but it seemed in nineteen ninety. Right? You had decided that, okay, you could see yourself doing this, like Gasoline Alley style? I guess so. Um, what seems to have happened with the strip, if I look back, is that every so often, I, I hate the word reinvent, but it's sort of what happens about every, I don't know what if you can, uh, you know, figure out a, a literal time period that, that is typical, but like in 1998, I moved from San Francisco to Connecticut, and I suddenly noticed my environment huh. in a big, big way. And I started having Zippy speak to these roadside muffler men and giant ducks and big bowling pins. And and that morphed into diners. You know, it's all the stuff that you see in New England. You don't, you don't see in California. Muffler man. Yeah, muffler man. I just, and I, doggy. I wasn't living in this little uh, tight little world of San Francisco where you hardly ever go outside mm-hmm. your neighborhood. 
I was driving around and seeing all this stuff, and I started taking pictures and thinking it would be fun for Zippy to, to uh, as someone once described, for Zippy to escape into the real world. Mm. And that went on for a number of years. People were sending me lots of photographs of roadside icons and diners. And, and then, uh, lo and behold, Dingberg happened in 2007. On September 11th. On September 11th. <laughs> Which, you know, you say, is uh, we talked about this earlier, uh, it was not intentional. But since Dingberg, you know, as, as you've been exploring this place, seems, you know, to be one of the deepest studies of, of the weird underside of American culture i i don't know i, I just i can't it, it just seems strange you know with all those and again you know thinking back to all those years of anniversaries media onslaught of september 11th you know culminating mm-hmm. the 10 years but uh you say it was another coincidence yeah i mean I, my strip has done six weeks in advance so <laughs> well, I you're the one writing the dates on them it's true yeah 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 so you would you would have been aware somewhere that's in true, there that's true okay um you got me so uh and t- today, in 2011, the, uh, the newspaper strip, you know, mo- most people are reading these comics online. I mean, I read yours on your site, uh, zippythepinhead.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read uh, Trudeau's as well. And in the comics page seems to, I have, like, it's like my sick uncle who's on life support. I don't want to pull <laughs> the plug because I have all these fond memories. But uh, it does seem that uh, we're on, it's it, this, this art form is on its way. I mean, the mm-hmm. energy of great comics, cartooning is moved to the web and it's still yeah. alive, but the idea of this institution of the comics page seems over. Probably, but it's over in slow motion, yeah. thank, thankfully. Uh, a few years ago, maybe three years ago, I was worried, very worried, and literally to the point where I, I was... I was depressed. I was kind of thinking, what the hell am I going to do with my life? Newspaper comics are going to be over real soon. They're going to throw me out. They're going to fire me. But it hasn't happened. No. And I was at the National Cartoonist Society convention last year in Boston, and there are thousands of wannabe newspaper cartoonists <laughs> out there. So the word has not quite gotten out that it's dead. It's, it's yeah. dying. It, it is dying. But it's, yeah. like I said, it's in slow motion, and maybe it'll die after I die. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, Gary Trudeau has talked about this uh, of Doonesbury's as well, saying that he knows it's happening, but he's more than happy to stay until they ask him to turn the lights out. Like, yeah. he's, he's fine with that. Yeah. And you feel the same? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. And like you say, people will still read um, comics on the web. Yeah. And, and in books. And in books. So yeah. I'm not worried about it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, you know, we've got uh, about uh, 12 minutes left. We can take some calls if, if, if we've got some good ones. Uh, 201-209-9368. We've also got the AccuPlaylist um, page going. But uh, my guest here on Too Much Information today is the cartoonist Bill Griffith, who's been one of my uh, heroes for, for many, many years. And, you know, one of the things I've always wanted to talk to you about, Bill, is... Mm. And, and I, you know, one of your favorite stories to tell is the story of the Zippy movie, which never happens. And you know, there's many <coughs> meetings, many possibilities, but at the end, nothing's ever materialized, which has given you tons of material for the strip. And you don't seem to be bitter about it since they did pay for all the meetings and the scripts, but there was no free corn dog. Um, but I think I feel you got something else out of this, and I felt this for years. It seems that I feel that you have an understanding of what, mainstream American culture really means from this experience with the movie and also your own personal trajectory from going from the underground and going to the comics page. I feel that if I if you were to write a book called Mainstream Culture, what is it? I would buy it. <laughs> 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 yeah, 
Yeah, well, I got a heavy dose of it in Hollywood. Um, you know, we would have these meetings, and you know, it's like Hollywood. There's it, two things at work. First of all, Hollywood is about not making movies. The amount of movies that don't get made every year, uh, number in the thousands, but all those movies have production deals. They all have options. The things mm. are moving. People are getting paid. Uh, very early on, I realized that there, the, the reason we, we might have gotten a meeting is just because somebody had an office and had to have an appointment that day. So we were in there for the appointment. They flew you out, put you yeah. up in hotels, yes, exactly. paid lots of money right. for right. your time. Right. There was a guy named Stuart Kornfeld who wanted to make the uh, RoboCop movies who told me, literally. That's, what he, that's why he called me down. He said, uh, I had to justify my budget. I had to call you. I had to call somebody. I said, why me? He said, I thought you were funny. I thought I'd like to meet you. <laughs> yeah. There th- there was one moment, my favorite, perhaps surreal moment, was the uh, issue with Disney. Can, can, you, can you talk about that and what, what yeah. that? Because you've returned to this. You've returned to this many times in your work. Like, what, yeah, it, Disney, what is this story and what does it mean? Disney is one of my bet noirs. Um, yeah. Uh, a few years after the Pee Wee Herman, the first Pee Wee Herman movie, um, the... Uh, the producer of that movie, Bill McEwen, who also was uh, Steve Martin's agent, contacted the people that had a zippy option at that point and said, I think that Disney people would like to like to see Zippy. They, they feel really bad that they passed on Pee-wee and somebody else did Pee-wee and they feel really bad. They thought Pee-wee would have made a wonderful um, addition to Disney World, a ride, a Pee-wee ride, all that stuff. Of course, this is before the Pee-wee scandal. So they requested the meeting. Disney actually requested a meeting. So we sent them a script, and we come down for the meeting, and there's a script on the desk, and these guys in suits are looking at us. And um, I said, they said something like, the script is great. Um, and that was it. That was the entire discussion of the script. The script is great. And they looked at me and said, we have one concern, one problem. And I said, what's that? And they said, the stubble. I said, well... And I was going to go into my stubble is good yeah. and stubble is hip and stubble is happening. And they said, we're very concerned because when we envision a, a zippy walk-around head, you know, the big head that would uh, on, the, on the little zippy body that would walk around greeting visitors at Disney World, it might frighten the small children to have – what would the stubble look like? Would it actually be these cylindrical things protruding out of his cheeks or would it be dots? And it, it didn't yeah. – we didn't – so what I was supposed to say at that point was the stubble is out. Stubble, forget the stubble. Zippy doesn't have any stubble. But I, instead, I started talking about Don Johnson and how the stubble was uh. part of his look. And uh, within about ten minutes, we were in the elevator. Yeah, a lot of meetings ended in the elevator. You know, um, I was reading this uh, very famous essay from Dwight McDonald, from, from early New Yorker writer that uh, was famously wrote about mass cult and mid cult. But he quotes Evelyn Waugh talking about Hollywood and her experience and how each book purchased for motion pictures has some individual quality, good or bad, that has made it remarkable. And it is the work of all the people in Hollywood to distinguish this quality, separate it, and obliterate it. <laughs> obliterate it, exactly. Yeah, like um, uh, a classic example would be uh, uh, Beatle George Harrison at a company called Handmade Films. And... Um, Handmade films, uh, whatever, producer, executive, somebody, was a guy named Dennis O'Brien. Dennis O'Brien flies out from London, uh, 
and wants to meet with us uh, in the offices of Saul Zantz, the producer, the film producer of uh, uh, lots of big, big, big budget movies, and he wants to talk about Zippy. So that meeting started, and once again, he said the script is great. We have one of the one problem we'd like to talk about with you. I said, "What is that?" And he said, "The costume." And I said, "What's the problem?" He said, "Well, after all, it is a man in a dress." <laughs> and he actually suggested yeah. that Zippy might um, want to think about having a tank top and jeans, <laughs> but he could still keep the stubble. Oh man! But you know, again, it's a, it's a parade of these types of meetings, you know, over the years that you know, again, could is its own story. So much of it comes into the into the work, but it, there seems to be a lot you've learned about the nature, the destructive nature of mainstream culture. Yeah, in um, but I see. I sabotaged every meeting we had. Looking back, first of all, by not taking the cue. Hmm. You know, the cue was. Zippy has a, uh, looks as a man in a dress. I was supposed yeah. to say, forget the dress. We can work without that. Yeah. I, I was supposed to, that was my line. Yeah, I was supposed yeah. to give, and I, I never gave that line. Yeah, yeah. The integrity, it's so overrated. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Philip Roth. I oh, didn't even know I had integrity. Yeah. I just, I, it just yeah. didn't make sense. Philip Roth famously was just like, check, give me the check. He does not care what happens with the yeah. books. It's just, just all he wants to talk about is the check. Yeah, I, I had some friends who, who did that too, yeah. cartoonist friends, but... Now, um, creative control was usually the end of the, the, end, of the <laughs> end of the discussion. Um, this is too much information. My name is Benjamin Walker. Uh, uh, the new book from Fanographics is Bill Griffith: Lost and Found Comics from 1969 to 2003. And quickly, I guess since the phone's uh, not going to ring, let's just end on Dingberg. You know, Dingberg is uh, a whole city. I mean, the latest book has a map. It's great. You, and again, just as your statues become real, you, you, you give this place its own uh, map and, and outline of a fold-out cover yeah. of the city. But some of my favorite, I mean, the this, this storyline is still in progress, but we even have Occupy Dingberg. And the Dingberg hipsters, I, I'm <laughs> curious if you could maybe tell us a little bit about them before we say goodbye. Well, the, the Beatniks were, the, were my first uh, heroes, you know, when I was a teenager in Levittown. I would get on the Long Island Railroad and take it into into Penn Station and go down to the village. I actually literally bumped into um, Bob Dylan at one point, literally, in Gertie's Folk City on McDougal Street, probably 1961. Um, and um, it was my first creative efforts were actually poetry. I idolized uh, Allen Ginsberg, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. I remember I went to an Allen Ginsberg reading of, of Kaddish, mm. Uh, when I was 17, still in high school, I was in the front row. So he's he's emoting and you know, spraying the audience with saliva. And um, he all of a sudden disappears into a room behind the, the desk and marijuana s- smoke comes out the <laughs> bottom. I didn't know what it was. I just thought it was funny smelling <laughs> stuff. At the end of the uh, reading, I walked up because I was right in front of him. I walked up with my copy of Hal and asked him for an autograph. And he looked at it and he said, man, what year is this? Oh. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> uh, is this storyline going to go on for... I mean, th- at the same time, there's this love for these Dingberg hipsters. It, it still seems, you know, since it's the pinheads and merging with the beatniks, it's, you know, with the out there language, it, it 
I don't know. It, it gives it a whole different tone than like something. It's it's very it's very. Sur- did, did you read my Charles Bukowski um, no imitator no um, what's this? I can't remember his name right now. Um, Slouch Gavitsky is the Dingberg version of Charles Bukowski. So I do these parodies of, yeah. of Bukowski poetry. I, I don't know. I, it's it's it actually it's it's something that people um, comment on quite a bit. Yeah. They like they like the beatnik. Th- oh, absolutely, the beatnik thread of Dingberg. Yeah, well, we'll see where that goes. We are and sadly, sadly, out of time. Uh, this is too much information. Um, my name is Benjamin Walker. Thanks once again to Bill Griffith for coming down and spending the hour with us. The archive will be up soon. You can find all the uh, too much information programs at wfmu.org. And we'll stay tuned for Nardwar, who will be up next. Thanks again, Bill. My pleasure. Thank you.